SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 37 with guest Chris Webb. Our guest today is Chris Webb. Chris is an independent consultant specializing in SQL Server analysis services and in particular the MDX query language. He is a co-author of the book MDX Solutions with Microsoft SQL Server Analysis Services 2005. Chris blogs regularly on BI topics at cwebbi.spaces.live.com. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Greg. First up, as I do with everybody, I'll get you to describe how did you ever come to get involved with SQL Server at all? Um, well, I mean, it's, it happened probably getting on for 10 years ago. Um, I'm in my early 30s now, and um, about 10 years ago, I was in my, my first job in IT, and um, having messed around a bit with DB6 and other things that people in their first jobs in IT did about 10 years ago, I got put onto a project. Surprising numbers working... still still do, I might add. It's not terrible <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. But um, yeah, I was working for a, a large market research company in London, and um, obviously you know, market research companies have always been very interested in business intelligence type topics. And um, this company had a long history with using OLAP databases. Um, and they had a number of proprietary systems developed in-house, and as all IT departments do, they were kind of looking around saying, well, should we get rid of these proprietary solutions? Let's try and move on to um, something off the shelf. And the project that I was put onto had basically gone and evaluated every single OLAP database out there on the market, so um, the likes of Cognos, MicroStrategy, um, S-Base, all all of the usual um, names. And um, we'd been working with Nigel Penzi, who's a very well-known guy in the um, OLAP uh, world. He's the guy behind the OLAP report and the BI survey. And um, he kind of came around and mentioned the fact, mentioned to us that uh, Microsoft was coming out with a, an OLAP database, yep. um, which was going to be bundled with SQL Server 7. So we kind of extended the projects and got onto the beta program for SQL Server 7 and um, started looking at what was then OLAP services. Mm. And because this market research company had got a long history with OLAP tools and had some very stringent requirements. Um, we had a, you know, a something like a 60-page document of things that we wanted OLAP tools to do, and all of the preceding tools had you know, not 
not met the grade. Yeah. And so we set to for about another six months learning OLAP services and MDX to try and get it to produce the queries that we wanted it to do. Hmm. Um, and it, it passed more or less, or it was kind of good enough. And then we carried on working with it and um, realized that by the time you know, SQL 2000 came out and OLAP services had become analysis services, yeah. it was actually the tool that we wanted to work with. So yeah. we set to... Well, in, in version 7, what were the, the main things you thought were missing? Um, well, I mean, version 7, it was... Well, it's, it's a long time ago to remember what was actually missing mm. in OLAP services. Uh, there were things that were missing, like... Ooh, I'm sure parent-child hierarchies weren't there in um, mm-hmm. version 7. Um, and that was one of the key things that we needed. So mm. parent, one of the features of parent-child hierarchies is the ability to um, load data in at higher levels than the leaf level of your dimension. So if you have genuinely non-aggregatable data, then the only way you can load that into a queue is using a parent-child hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And so we had quite a lot of that. So I think that was the key feature why we kept hanging on for analysis services. Um, And I'm I'm sure there were other things that were missing in OLAP services. Um, But as soon as analysis services came on the scene, we were with it in a big way and we started developing our own client tool and um, I got to use my VB6 skills probably for the last time. Yeah. Uh, we wrote a client tool for Excel and um, built a production system that when I left that job it was spitting out something like um, three or 4,000 cubes a month to send out to people. So, um, mm. you know, we, I, I was very lucky to get um, an awful lot of good analysis services and MDX experience, um, you know, right from the days when you could count the number of people that knew MDX on the, on the fingers of one hand. Yes, uh, Adam Adam Kogan, uh, one of the regional directors locally, uh, always sort of jokes about the uh, the need to avoid learning uh, MDX, uh, or sorry, uh, or how few people have learned MDX, and he, he normally lists uh, two or three people on his hand, and he says, locally, they're the only ones who really know. So, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a small number. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that I always say is that it's impossible to know MDX and SQL at the same time. It's two yep. things that are kind of mutually exclusive. And I guess I was lucky that I learned MDX you know, right at the beginning of my career when I didn't really know any SQL. And to mm. be honest, I don't really know that much SQL now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've grown up with an MDX brain rather than a SQL brain. Yeah. Listen, one of the things uh, I must have been, when I first spent a fair bit of time with analysis services was in 2000 version. And the first take I had on it when I looked at it is to me, the tooling, it didn't look like a Microsoft tool. Uh, the, all the tooling just didn't have a very Microsoft look and feel to it. Uh, where in 2005, they've clearly rewritten the tooling and, uh, it, it really has a much more Microsoft feel now. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's true. You could, you, you might be able to kind of attribute that to the fact that, um, of course, as a product, it was um, bought in from Panorama in the late nineties, mm. and you know, okay, it was substantially developed even before it was released as OLAP services. But the, the core team, the people that worked on it from 
that point that came from Panorama and you know really worked on it up until Analysis Services 2005. They were yeah. the ex-Panorama people, people like um, Moshe Pasimansky and various others as well. Mm. You know, it's a very like, like, like I'm told it's a very tight-knit team. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it, there are a lot of very clever people on that team as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I often get that feeling with uh, there's quite a few other products where they've sort of bought it in and then uh, I, I think it may be just so many years now of using various Microsoft products, they always have a sort of a, a look and feel to them and uh, I found Analysis Services one that just sort of stood out when I first was sort of using the tooling that I, it just didn't feel like a Microsoft thing. I mean, there, there are others. I used to think the same about the, uh, the network protocol analyzer. It, uh, another one they bought in that did sort of, it had a non Microsoft feel. The, the other one still, uh, today where they've, um, whenever I've had a go at Visio, one of the things I find is just, and I think it's the interaction with how the user interface works. I, I get a very, still a very non-Microsoft feel about even tools like Video, Visio. But, uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think in 2005, they seem to have done a pretty good job on the tooling. And certainly in 2008, it, it looks like, uh, the tooling's had another facelift again, uh, particularly with all the best practice design tools and so on. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose you coming from the kind of SQL Server world, you know, one of the things that maybe frustrates me a little bit about analysis services is that you kind of live in that parallel universe to SQL Server, and you're always you know, looking over and seeing what the SQL Server guys have got. And it's always that couple of years more advanced in terms of um, you know, product maturity, really. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was looking today, um, I playing around with RC0 of analysis services, and I was looking around in SQL Management Studio, and I right-clicked on somewhere, and I saw, wow, look, there's policy-based management for analysis services. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I've read about policy-based management for SQL Server, and I thought, oh, great, you know, this will, this is something new. This is something I didn't know was there for analysis services, and I started checking it out. And, um, you know, I mean, with SQL Server, you've got a great big list of facets, things you can you know, create policies about. Um, yeah, things, things that have properties like tables and servers and databases and so on, yeah. Exactly, and I was looking and, um, you know, how many facets have we got for analysis services? One. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically a, a list of about five options, which were the five options that you could change in the old surface area configuration Yes. All for SQL 2005. And, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe in the next release we'll get something good. But Yeah. You know, Actually, that's, it's, it's an, what's your thought on that? The One of the things that's happening in 2008 is the removal of the surface area configuration tool. And the discussion seems to be the uh, that people will be able to do it via policy-based management instead. But... I'm imagining an awful lot of people who probably won't even look at or touch management via policy who would have found the surface area configuration tool sort of useful in its previous state. To be honest, I've never come across anybody that has even realised that the surface area configuration tool worked for analysis services either. So, oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure it's really going to make that much difference. Mm. Um, but... No, fair enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, from a, from a BI point of view, I think probably having everything in SQL Management Studio will mean that more people will see it's there. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so, listen, anyway, so the topic for today uh, was MDX. And so, uh, given the fact that uh, it's still commonplace that so few people have really spent much time with MDX, uh, what's the best starting point for someone trying to get their head around MDX? Well, I, I do a fair bit of training on MDX, and this is something that I've given a lot of thought to. Um, to be honest, I think the best way to learn MDX is on a project, um, mm-hmm. even though I'll, I'll try and sell courses and things like that. You know, trying to learn MDX with theory or through books, I think it, it's going to be a waste of time. Um, it, it's something you really need to, I think, get your hands dirty with and, and, and do over a long period of time because it's really a way of thinking more than anything else. Yeah. Um, I think most people who've spent, you know, who've kind of experienced and spent a couple of years in the IT industry have got to the point where they, they think, you know, anything new they have to learn is just, you know, new information, new facts. There's nothing difficult to get your head around. Um, you know, if you were, when you were first learning how to program, you had that, you know, that problem of, well, what's a variable or what's a loop or things like yeah. that. And most people in the IT industry think, well, you know, I've, I've got to that stage. I know all of the concepts I need to know. Um, and then when they come to something like MDX, they've got a problem because it's a whole new way of thinking. And people struggle with that. Um, and it's not something that you can really learn in a you know, kind of classroom environment or from books. Um, it's something you've got to learn through practice and just doing things and just get into that way of thinking. So I would say probably the best way of doing it, if you're interested in using analysis services, is to get hold of some data that you think would look good in a cube and then build a cube and then just run some, you know, write some queries, build some calculations on it and try and get it to do what you want. Yeah. I suppose um, one of the I mean, challenges is making sure that what you get out is also what you're aiming to get out as well. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I think in most cases people are comfortable and what you see people doing are, you know, uh, people who, who know their data and then they can write the SQL to get the data out and then they want to write the MDX and then they can cross-check the results of their SQL query with their MDX query. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really am a great believer in people, people needing to get their hands dirty with MDX and just do practical examples. Yeah. No, that, that's really good. The, what, what do you think are the – I suppose one of the questions that I have first up is that do you think it was wise that they picked a syntax that was SQL-like? Um. Again, I think this is one of those points that's been discussed. I think personally they might have been better off changing some of the keywords just to avoid confusing people with the similarities. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of, you know, having a select statement is not bad, but um, the thing that really confuses people is the MDX where clause. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as someone from a SQL background sees a where clause, they think it's going to be a way of filtering something. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a common newbie question on maybe the MSDN forums is people who are trying to work out how to use their MDX where clause to filter something. 
So, in a way, maybe if they'd kept the same structure of a query but changed some of the keywords to be, you know, to use the word slice instead of where, that might have um, made it easier for people to learn MDX. Yeah. Okay. So maybe if we make a start, the uh, I suppose the first thing we should look at is um, what are the best references for someone attempting to learn? I mean, George Spofford's book is one that tends to be suggested a fair bit. Is it Spofford, I think, was the name? Yeah. Um, well, George was the lead author on um, MDX Solutions, which I, I co-authored with a number of other people. So yeah. that's probably, that's in fact the only book out there that really deals with Analysis Services 2005 MDX in any depth. Mm. Most Analysis Services books will have a, a chapter or maybe two on MDX, but um, if you really want to kind of get into any depth with MDX, then um, MDX Solutions is, is one place to go. Yeah, it, it um, seems to be the one that everybody refers to, that's for sure. Yeah, and there's also a book, Fast Track to MDX, which was, which is more aimed at, um, it's more of more of a kind of tutorial, I think, um, and that was co-written by Moshe and um, another friend of mine, Mark Whitehorn, yep. um, and that's a very good book as well. Uh, although unfortunately, it hasn't been updated for Analysis Services 2005, so it, in in a couple of key areas, it it, it will be quite difficult for people to follow if, if they're trying to use Analysis Services 2005. Mm. The basic concepts are still the same, but um, especially because of the dimension changes that happened between Analysis Services 2000 and 2005, that might you know, confuse people a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's also a great series of um, articles online uh, by a guy called Bill Pearson. So if you look for his series of articles, and he has put out probably literally hundreds of articles on MDX and the uses of MDX. That's another great place to, to start to learn mm -hmm. MDX. Yep. Um, apart from uh, attending a class with someone like Chris. <laughs> so, oh, well, yeah, yes. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, look, if we start with um, basic concepts um, of MDX, so maybe if you can just describe, let's say, first up, the purpose of the language and what it attempts to to do? Well, I guess the first question you've got to ask about MDX is why it even exists in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, why not use SQL? That's, you know, something that really deserves some discussion. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the OLAP world, it, it, there, there is still a kind of open question about whether there is a need for a separate query language at all. Um, you know, if you if you look at Oracle with their with their OLAP option, um, they've kind of deliberately avoided using MDX, probably for political reasons as much as anything, mm. and um, they've gone down the route of trying to extend SQL. But um, I mean, I I would argue that there is actually a, a justification for having a separate query language, and that is that if you've gone to all the trouble of building a cube, which is really just nothing more than a kind of layer of extra metadata over your data. What you really want is a language that allows you to access that metadata. So, you know, for example, if you're thinking about a common type of BI query or calculation, um, something like a previous period growth calculation is a good one. 
So, you know, right now we're in June 2008. And do you want to write some kind of calculation that says, you know, take the current month's sales, take the previous month's sales, and then find the difference between them? Yeah. So that's, you know, one of the most basic types of calculation you can do in a, you know, in a reporting or BI type environment. Yeah. Now, that in itself is actually quite difficult to do in SQL. I mean, someone like Ipsit Bangan you know, makes a good living of going around showing people the best way of doing this in SQL. Mm. And the reason really is in SQL is that, you know, you've got the problem of, well, what do you mean by current month and what do you mean by previous month? Because there's no layer of metadata in you know, your relational database that says, well, this is the current month and this is your previous month. Yeah. You know, you've got rows in a table. Whereas in a cube, when you're looking at the month June, you know, assuming you've built your cube correctly and built your dimension correctly, you can say, well, what is the month before June? And you will be able to say, okay, the month before June is always going to be April. So you have that concept of you know, dimensions and hierarchies and levels and members built into the language. And that's reflecting the metadata you built into the cube. So in MDX, you've got a language that actually allows you to access that metadata, that idea that you've got members in an order on a level. These members have kind of neighbors, so you can go forward and backwards. So you can say, what's the next month? What's the previous month? You can go up and down the hierarchy. So you can say, well, June 2008 is in quarter two 2008 is in the year 2008. Yeah. And then you can go down the hierarchy and say, well, you know, there are the dates from the 1st of June to the you know, 31st of June in 2008, or 30th of June, rather. Um, and, you know, these are all concepts. You know, the, the hierarchy is actually built into the language, and you can access that. So that, to me, is the big justification for MDX, the fact yeah. that you can actually get at that metadata from within the language, and you don't have to jump through any hoops to get that. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. And the other thing with that is the uh, even the con simple concepts like a day, uh, it, it, there's always the question about whose day uh, are we talking about. So, I mean, at first it might always seem like a really simple problem where it's a, a case of um, aligning with a real live physical calendar, but uh, most organisations have potentially a concept of uh, maybe some point in the day when they start becoming the next day or something like that. So, uh, again, uh, selecting dimensions appropriately or configuring time dimensions might not directly relate uh, to physical calendars in the way you imagine. So often, yeah, I would imagine that um, you the access to metadata that, that has a a concept of what the business calls a quarter or what, whatever the thing is, is is clearly important. Exactly. And, and almost using the concept of dates is a little bit off-putting because you can kind of do dates in SQL anyway. Yeah. But if you're looking at something like a product dimension, saying, you know, the product, the product category food contains, you know, the product subcategories, canned food, fruit, vegetables, and so on, 
um, you know, the fact that you can build your product dimension into a structure and be able to access that structure inside MDX, that's something that you could never, ever do inside SQL mm. without you know, jumping through a lot of hoops again. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's the point, is that in the end it's also it's just the number of hoops you'd have to jump through to be able to do it. Exactly, because, you know, there isn't anything inherently that you you can do in MDX that you can't do in SQL. It's just a matter of, um, you know, the right tool for the job. Yeah. And I would argue that, you know, if you're, if you're equally competent at SQL and MDX and you're working in a BI environment... For the majority of queries and calculations you want to write, you would probably end up preferring to write them in MDX. Yeah, that's good. So that's the argument as to why we would want uh, or why MDX has a justification for existing. So then maybe if we can just progress some, through some of the basic MDX concepts. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess the, the basic MDX concepts, a lot of them relate to the structure of the cube. So, you know, in MDX, we know about dimensions. We know that dimensions are made up of hierarchies. We know that hierarchies are made up of levels. And we know that levels are made up of members. So if we're thinking about types of dimension that we might have in our cube, then types of dimension might be time or product or customer, the kind of vague ways that you can group your data up by. Yeah. And so inside each dimension, we have specific hierarchies. And these are almost the things that you can, you know, the, the more specific ways you can group things up by. Um, so, for example, on the time dimension, we might have years or months or dates on the customer dimension, we might have the country the customer lives in, the uh, address the customer lives in, the customer themselves. Um, on our product dimension, we might have categories, subcategories, you know, specific product codes. Um, and of course, we can have multi-level hierarchies where we can group these different attributes of the dimension into kind of multi-level drill paths. Um, and then within these hierarchies, we've got levels. So these are the kind of particular grouping levels. So, for example, on the time dimension, we might have a hierarchy with levels year, quarter, month, and date. And then on these levels, we have you know, the first kind of big important MDX concept, which is the concept of a member. So... Um, some examples of what a member is in MDX are things like individual dates, like the date 20th of June 2008, or the year 2008, or the customer Chris Webb, or the yeah. country UK. And these are these are the kind of distinct entities that you would find in um, in the attributes from your dimension table. So these are, if you were doing a, some kind of SQL group by query, these are the individual, the distinct values that would appear that you've grouped by. So those are members. And so all of these concepts we've talked about so far come from the concept, from the concepts that we've got from the structure of the cube. The other two important um, entities are 
tuples or tuples, pronunciation depends on where you live in the world, but I always say tuples, um, and sets. So a tuple is kind of like a, a coordinate to a, a cell within the cube. So you can think of a cube as being a kind of great big multidimensional array. And you can think of the dimensions as being the dimensions within the array. Yeah. Um, and if you want to get a, a particular value within your cube, then you need some way of um, you know, working out the address of that individual cell within the array. And yeah. that is basically what a tuple is. It's just a, it's kind of an address for a cell within the cube. And a tuple is basically just a, you know, a list of member references from different hierarchies, and you put them all together in a common delimited list, and that gives you more or less a cell within your cube where it, where it yeah. contains a value that you can access. And then the other main concept within, a, within MDX is the concept of a set. So a set is an ordered list of members or tuples. So, you know, a set could be the list of years, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, or it could be the set of customers, Chris Webb, Greg Lowe, Joe Bloggs. Um, And those are the three main concepts, I guess, members, sets, and tuples that you have to really understand before you get anywhere with NDX. And everything really follows on from there. Um, What I find is that I think a lot of people can read MDX and see what's going on, but unless they've really understood those three basic concepts, they can kind of hack stuff together. They can hack queries and calculations together that work, but they don't really understand what's going on. It's not until you really fully kind of are happy with the idea of mem- what a member or a set or a tuple is that you can really progress with MDX. Okay, one of the questions that comes up is the do you think any of the standard uh, design tools that output MDX uh, are you happy in general with the MDX that they generate? Uh, or, or is there a qualitative thing where uh, I'm, what I'm thinking is if I look at standard relational SQL, um, many of the query tools, the, the sort of SQL it generates, I often look at and cringe a bit. So I'm sort of wondering if you have that reaction uh, with any of the tools uh, in the in the Microsoft suite that output MDX. I think it, it's a it's a common thing that you know everybody when they look at the the, the type of MDX that a, a client tool spits out will look at it and um, say, oh, you know, that's rubbish. We, you know, I could write better myself. Yeah. Um, having been on the other end of somebody that's had to write an MDX generation tool, albeit a, a couple of years ago, I know just how hard it is. Um, and, you know, now, nowadays, the, the current generation of tools, they often have to write MDX that not only supports Analysis Services 2005, but also Analysis Services 2000. Um, quite often, there might you know, these tools might even try and support other flavors, other variants of MDX as well. For yeah. example, maybe um, S-Base MDX, or more commonly uh, SAP BW MDX. Um, and that means that you end up t- 
taking certain um, making certain design compromises with how things are done. Yeah. And of course, there's also the human factor. Um, you know, people not really understanding the language, and you know, yes, certainly there. In a lot of cases, you look at the MDX that's being generated, and you think, well, you know, why on earth do they do that like that? Um, I mean, reporting services is one is one common culprit, if yeah. only because you tend to look at the MDX more often, and you look at the look at the kind of convoluted MDX that that generates, and you think, well, why on earth did they do that? Yeah, but, um, I, I'm always trying to be charitable. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I suppose what I was coming to is that I've seen people who are learning relational SQL and they sometimes use a tool to generate the query and see what they're, see what they're trying to get. And then they'll look at the SQL to see if that, to, to try and pick up how they should have written the query. And what I'm sort of coming to is I'm just wondering if any of the tools do a good enough job of the generated MDX that people could do the same, where they could use a tool to generate the query, look at Make changes and then have a look at the code to get a feel for what it's doing. Well, yeah, I mean, people do try and do that all the time um, mm-hmm. with MDX. The problem is with these, with any client tool, the MDX that it generates is always going to um, be a lot more complicated than you know, MDX that you would write yourself. Yeah, probably because I guess they've got to they've got to cover all kinds of eventualities, all different possible cube designs. So it, it's always harder to learn MDX MDX like that because the MDX that's generated is usually much more complicated than it would need to be yeah. if you knew about your your you know if the tool really knew about your cube. So yeah. um, it, I, I generally try and tell people not to bother doing that. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of tools do spit out fairly readable MDX. I mean, the old ProClarity Desktop Professional did a pretty good job. Um, Excel 2007 does a pretty good job now as well. But mm. um, in almost all cases, it's going to be it's going to try and throw you pretty much in the deep end with the type of MDX that it produces. Yeah. No, that's good. And so, returning to the the queries, maybe if we look at the basic uh, types of queries and the basic structure of those queries. Yeah, so I mean, in, in terms of the MDX you need to know, um, when do you need to learn MDX? The interesting thing about MDX, I think, is that um, you'd think coming from a SQL background, the, the most important bit of MDX you'd need to know is a select statement. But in actual fact, most people very rarely write select statements because you know, most of the time they're using a, a tool that generates these select statements for them. Yeah. Um, but in order to get data out of the queue, you have to, somewhere along the line, have a select statement generated for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as we, as we kind of mentioned earlier, the, the similarities between an MDX select statement and a SQL select statement can be confusing, to say the least because superficially they look very similar. You know, you've got a select clause, a from clause, and a where clause. Um, in fact, you've also got a with clause and a having clause as well, possibly, yeah. uh, all of which do very, very different things from you know, the SQL equivalents. But the basic MDX statement has a select clause, and it has a from clause. So the from clause specifies the cube you're querying, and you can only ever query one cube at a time. 
Mm -hmm. The select clause specifies the data that you want to get out of the queue. Now, the big difference with uh, SQL select statements and MDX select statements is that in MDX, every axis in your query is treated the same. So in SQL, there's a pretty big difference between how you specify what you want on columns and what you get on what you want on rows in, rows, in, yeah. in, in, in what you get returned. Whereas in MDX, you treat every axis the same. So the first big difference with MDX is that you can have a multi-dimensional result set returned. So you can actually have um, a result set with no axes in it, you can, which will just return a single cell, or you can yeah. have a one-dimensional result set, a two-dimensional result set, or even a three, four, five, I think up to 128-axis result set. Um, now, most of the time, everybody just writes a two-dimensional result set, but the option is there to have more or less axes in your result set. Yeah, so it's and not then, necessarily returning a table. It's actually returning potentially a cube. Well... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's returning a cube. cube. It's returning yeah. a it, it's returning a kind of multi-dimensional result set, not yeah. really a cube, but a multi-dimensional result set. Um, and so, when you're specifying what you want on an axis, you have to kind of specifically say what you want. So it has more in common, I guess, with the columns axis of a SQL select statement than anything than anything else. Yeah. Um, so you can either, so what do you want on an axis in, a, in an MDX select statement? You have to specify a set which you know, says what you want. So you can either you know, write your set out manually containing the list of members or tuples that you want to appear on that axis. Or you can use any one of a large number of MDX functions which return sets. So very often what you'll find is that you, you know, in some cases you just have a, a simple list of members, uh, or maybe you will have one or a number of nested MDX set functions, so you pass a set in, it does something to it like filter it or sort it or you know, whatever else and then you pass the results that that set function returns into another set function, into another set function, until you've got the set of members or tuples that you actually want to return on your axis. So um, the thing that kind of grabs me is that people talk about the need to write set-based SQL. Um, in MDX, you can't avoid writing set-based MDX. Yeah. In fact, you, you have a trouble, it's almost impossible to write anything other than set-based MDX. Um, and so that's the kind of first place where you really encounter that with your, with your MDX select statements, where you're specifying what you want to appear on rows or columns. Um, and as I said, you know, there's the, you know, the, the axes in an MDX select statement are, you know, treated always the same. So anything that you can do on columns, you can do on rows. Anything you can do on rows, you can do on columns. Um, and the MDX select statement is also very uh, output orientated. So um, in terms of getting the layout of the result set that you want, it's, it's very flexible. So if you think about all of the problems you have trying to pivot data or do cross-tabbing of data in SQL, um, in MDX, 
that happens very, very naturally. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, that's the basic MDX statement. Um, then the next, the first big problem that people have, as I said, is the where clause. The where clause, yeah. So people expect the where clause to somehow filter what's appearing on rows, which it doesn't really do. It can filter what appears on a visible axis indirectly. But really it acts like a kind of extra invisible slice of your result set. So it's as if you've got a third dimension or a third axis in your result set that you can't see, but it somehow slices the results. So, for example, if you've got um, countries appearing on the columns axis of your result set and um, products appearing on the rows axis, and you're showing sales by country by product in your result set, you might put the year 2008 in your where clause. And that would mean that you're slicing all your data by the year 2008, and that would mean that the sales you're showing in your result set were the sales for the year 2008. Yep. So it doesn't directly filter anything that appears on a visible axis. It kind of slices the data. It affects the numbers that appear, but not, the, not directly the um, rows or columns that you get out. Yep. Um, and then what else can you do? You can have a with clause in your select statement, and that allows you to define um, things like calculated members and name sets that you can then use within your query. And I guess that then moves on to the area that people really do have to learn MDX for, and that's for writing calculations for your cube. So as I said, most of the time people avoid writing SQL select, uh, MDX select statements, but almost every cube that has ever gone into production for analysis services has to have some kind of calculated member on it. Uh, and this is one of the big, one of the really powerful things about analysis services, the, the types of calculations that you can do. So the most common type of calculation you can have in MDX is a calculated member. So with you know the concept of a, a member, a member is a real member in a cube is something on a, a hierarchy, a thing like a, a year or a customer or a product. Yeah. But what you can also do in MDX is create calculated members which extend the space of the cube by one member. So um, most of the time, what you do is create members on the measures dimension. So the measures dimension in a cube is a kind of special dimension which contains the different numeric values that you're going to be aggregating your data up by. Yeah. So, for example, your measures might be things like sales or the number of units of something you've got in your, in your warehouse or the number of customers who bought something. So it's very common for you to want to create um, you know, a calculated member that might be profit. So you've got one measure, which is your um, revenue coming in, and then you've got another me measure which represents the costs of creating your products. And then the, the obvious thing to do is say, okay, my profit is my revenue minus my costs. Yep. Now, you know, that's the sort of thing that you can do pretty easily in SQL because... Sure, with a calculated you know, column, yep. Exactly. So that's very straightforward. And, you know, that's the simplest type of measure that you can do in um, MDX. 
but then you know as we mentioned earlier you come on to kind of time series calculations or kind of market share calculations where you want to do things like well I can see sales now for a particular date for a particular product um, you know, a particular customer but what I really want to be able to see are the year-to-date sales so what are the sales from the current date going back to the beginning of the year um, or you might want to say well you know what are the sales today um, compared to the same day in the previous year and these are all the type of calculations that you want to do inside your queue and these are the type of calculations that you really can't do very easily inside SQL but which happen relatively easily inside MDX um, so if you're creating a calculated member that says show me my um, my growth based on the same period in the previous year all you need to do is write an expression that simply says well what's my sales today what is my sales for the same period in the previous year yep. So you need to somehow construct a tuple that always returns the sales from the same day in the previous year based you know, relative to the current day, and then take the one from the other, and therefore you've got your, your kind of um, growth calculation done. And you know, that accounts, I guess, for 90% of all of the different types of calculations that you can do that people want to do in a cube, simple calculated measures like that that, um, you know, a time series types of calculation. But you can do much more complicated things than that as well. Well, listen, that's probably a good point that we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue discussing that and then maybe look at name sets and things. Sure. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services, and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www. Welcome back from the break. And so before we get back into the second part of the material, Chris, is, is there a life outside MDX and SQL? Um, well, yes, the remains of one. Um, I've got <laughs> um, two fairly young kids, so uh, I guess probably as anybody knows, with um, you know, once you've got children under five, um, the list of things that you can do is, is fairly limited, especially if you kind of, yeah. like me, work as a consultant. So um, by the time I've been away working, um, you know, I, I do a, a fair bit of work abroad, so I travel probably more than I ought to. Um, so mm. by the time I've done that and been away for the week, by the time I come home, I, you, know, you want to spend time with your family rather than go off and do anything else. Um, Mm-hmm. So it's kind of kind of end up putting your life on hold for a couple of years, but my youngest is about to turn two, so I can feel feel like my my spare time is slowly returning to me. 
<laughs> That's good. Yes, I was going to say, actually, last time I saw you was, uh, what, Dusseldorf, wasn't it? So, yeah, I mean, uh, at the past summit. So, yes, yet, yet another trip through somewhere. Exactly. The, actually, the funny, funny thing I was telling people, uh, the, uh, Heathrow Terminal 5 <laughs> was, uh, through there five times in three weeks and, uh, uh, it was just amazing because it was right after the day that they had the, uh, the significant meltdown there at, uh, the, the new terminal. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. it was, uh, uh, the, the thing that amazed everybody is that, yeah, five times in three weeks I went through there, but I still had luggage. So that, that was, uh, yeah, that was I think outstanding. five times through terminal five is probably five times too many. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I must admit it was very, very frustrating, uh, the, the trip through there at times and the, uh, uh, it was, uh, you, you know, when you have geek friends, because I was telling them that the, uh, one of the things I saw while I was there was the biggest Windows blue screen I've ever seen in my entire life. It was a, one of the big flight display systems and, and, and the whole thing was a big blue screen of death. It was just completely amazing. So, yeah. oh, yeah, I, mean, I, was... think that, I think that probably sums up Heathrow Terminal 5, the problems with it. It's just, <laughs> it's just a terminal that has been scaled up beyond, you know, the reasonable demands of, the, of any kind of airport terminal. You know, they've done the same <laughs> things, but on a massive scale, and then just found that everything falls falls down. And I, yeah, I, I got remember... the impression that they were there was something like uh, the day we were there. They they said they had it under control, but they had cancelled something like ninety flights, and they were handling all the baggage manually, and they still had a backlog of about 19,000 bags that were separated from their owners. So it was under control. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say that I, I didn't have any specific problems when I went through there. But, you know, just coming back into Heathrow Terminal 5, you know, I got off the plane and then we went down four flights of escalators, got on a train, went up four flights of escalators, walked what seemed like half a mile to get our luggage, and then walk through, and, you know, that's the first problem with Heathrow Terminal 5. The distances are just too big. And then it I does got... take a very long time to walk anywhere, and it did surprise me, that the, the big long distances there, that they don't have, like, travelators or something that they often yeah. do at other airports. Yeah. And then the other, the other problem that struck me is that I came out, and it's like, well, what do you do? You come out and you start looking for your taxi driver, which is usually just a matter of just walking up and down and looking for the guy with your name on a bit of card. But yeah. the problem with Heathrow Terminal 5 is that there were hundreds of taxi drivers with hundreds of bits of card. <laughs> and, you know, just the idea of how do you meet your taxi driver just doesn't scale up to the size of Heathrow Terminal 5. Yeah. You know, you need some kind of new solution for finding your taxi driver. And I walked up and down for 10 minutes before I realized that my taxi driver just wasn't there. So, um, oh, no. Yeah, I saw the thing that also fascinated me. I saw heaps of people. Obviously, they were having significant system problems, and I saw lots of people like standing around a screen where you'd see five or six people all standing there, all sort of with a very puzzled look on their face, occasionally pointing at the screen and all twisting their faces up. And it was it was quite remarkable to look at. So. It, it struck me, though, as um, a good example in sort of like a big project that was just sort of turned on one day where it was all built, all turned on, and just collapsed amazingly. So, And it, it, it does amaze me that you, it, it seems to be um, 
big projects like that just, just simply don't work. I mean, you, you would think there'd be enough experience in the airline industry by now to know how to build a terminal, yet even that, having it all as a sort of like one big, almost like a waterfall approach, I mean, it sim- simply didn't work. So. Exactly. I mean, you know, I, I guess it's probably the same in IT the world over. Everybody sees all of these big government IT projects that try and boil the ocean and end up failing and then they say well this is something this is a problem endemic with government IT but then you look at something mm. like Heathrow Terminal 5 and it just goes to show that it's not anything really to do with government it's just trying to do projects on a grand scale you know, yeah. the, the potential for disaster is absolutely massive it's, it's high so listen are there any sort of sports or hobbies or anything or is um, having a young family uh, preclude all those um, well, I've kind of precluded it. I've, um, I, I'm kind of just coming to the end of having done a lot of um, building work on the house. Not that I've done any of the building work myself, but um, mm. I'm kind of we've been taking the garden in hand. So I feel like I've been um, suddenly got to that stage in my life where you think, well, gardening—that's quite a fun thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. So yeah. um, I've been getting my hands dirty. And um, yeah, Good. making big bonfires and all of that kind of thing. So I shall start <laughs> learning to grow things now as well. <laughs> That's good. Well, so we were talking about uh, calculations and so on. And so I noticed that um, in 2008, one of the things that uh, was included in there were named sets. Um, well, no, named sets have been around um, since the beginning of MDX. The, the big change with well, one of the kind of touted big changes with 2008 is that you have dynamic name sets. Okay. So um, one of the big traps that people always fall into with MDX is that um, wherever you've got a, a set expression, you can use a name set. So you can create on your cube or in the with clause, you'll create a name set, which is um, you know, a kind of, you take a set of whatever, um, members or tuples, uh, and then you can give it a name, and then wherever you would have put that set expression, you can use the name instead. Um, the problem with name sets is that they're static. So whenever you use a name set, it will always return the same contents. Um, so the, the classic problem that people have is that they, they say, well, okay, I want to see my top 10 salespeople. Yeah. And you can get the, the top 10 of anything very easily in MDX using the top count set function. So you take mm-hmm. the set of all of your salespeople and then you say, well, I want the top 10 of these salespeople um, by the sales measure. And you can write a query that brings back the top 10 salespeople um, very nicely. And if you put that top count function in a set, you know, in the set of what you expect to see on the rows axis of your query, it works quite nicely. And then, if you change what you have in your where clause, then the top ten will change, you know, in conjunction with what you, ch- how you slice your query. So, for example, yeah. if you put the year two thousand and eight in your where clause, then you will see the top ten salespeople for the year two thousand and eight. Um, if you put the year 2007 in your where clause, you will see hopefully a different top 10 for the year 2007. And then people say, well, 
wouldn't it be really cool if I could let my users choose that top that top ten expression as a name set? So they create a name set on their cube and put in exactly the same expression. Um, and then they say, well, okay, now in my front-end tool, instead of having to set up this complex expression, I can gra just grab my name set, which is top 10 salespeople, and then it will hopefully just work. But the problem is it doesn't work like that. Because when you create a name set on your cube, you get the top 10 evaluated you know, in the context of the cube as a whole, not in the context of the query you've run. So typically yep. you'll, you'll get the top 10 salespeople for all time periods. And whenever you changed your slice, you would still get exactly the same top 10 salespeople. You would see those salespeople's sales vary by year, but you would always see the same 10 salespeople. Yeah, so the, um, the actual... So the, yeah. the actual people wouldn't change, just the sales value would. Yep. Exactly. Um, so people have kind of always thought, well, you know, this makes name sets a bit useless, which, you know, to be honest, they do. I mean, the, um, the uses for name sets are probably not as varied as, you know, widespread as you might think. Yeah. Um, so people have said, well, wouldn't it be great if you could have, you know, name sets that are dynamic? And that's kind of what you get in Analysis Services 2008. You can declare a name set as being dynamic, and that means that it will always get evaluated in the context of your WHERE clause. So you will have, you, know, you would then be able to take your top 10 salespeople as a name set and put it on the rows axis of your query. And then when you change the year in your WHERE clause, then you would have a different top 10 for every year. Yep. Which kind of does what you want. Now, the problem then is that people will, you know, your end user would see and have this and use it and think, well, that's great. And then what they would do is say, well, actually, I don't want to have my year in the where clause. I want to put my year on columns. So instead of having the year 2007 in the where clause, they will put, they will drag the you know, year hierarchy up to the columns, and they will just have 2007 cross-tabbed with whatever else was on columns. And then yeah. what they will see is that the top count, the, you know, the, this dynamic name set doesn't work anymore. And in fact, there are a lot of other circumstances where it doesn't, where it will break, to the extent that you know, personally. I don't see the uses of dynamic name sets as being really what they've been you know, hyped up for. Um, I think dynamic name sets will be useful in certain limited scenarios for doing this kind of um, query. And they will also, I guess, be useful for um, more kind of obscure areas of MDX. So, for example, if you are trying to detect um, situations where you have selected maybe more than one year in the where clause. Um, you know, you've, you've kind of multi-selected what you're slicing by. That's one example where, where dynamic name sets will be useful. And you know, I guess it will turn out that they're useful um, for various other different types of you know, 
optimization of complex calculations. But their you know, dynamic name sets will be a lot less useful, I think, than people are expecting, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a pity. So other things coming in 2008 that affect this? Um, well, um, what is new in Analysis Services 2008? Really the, the kind of big change as far as MDX goes in 2008 is, is performance. Um, it's one of those things that you, you, know, you can't, can't see, it doesn't demo well, um, but as soon as you start moving to Analysis Services 2008, you will notice that the performance of many common calculations is increased very greatly. Um, and that's what the development team have been spending all of their time on. Um, one of the things that people have got frustrated with in MDX is not writing the calculations that they want, but writing the MDX efficiently uh, or getting the calculation to perform as well as they would hope. Mm. Um, I guess one of the kind of problems with allowing people to do very complex calculations um, in a cube is that the potential for writing complex calculations that perform very badly has now been increased a lot as well. Um, you know, for example, if you imagine that you've got some type of calculation that does a year to date, you know, potentially you might be for every, you know, if you're looking at a particular date, say in June, you might be summing up several hundred dates to get one particular value. Um, and then, you know, if you're putting that year-to-date calculation in your where clause and you're showing 100 products on columns and 100 customers on rows, you suddenly got, you know, an awful lot of calculations to do before your query gets rendered. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the problem has been for the analysis services team, I guess, to try and, you know, work out what those common calculations are and optimize them. And that's what they've been doing. And I think they've done a very good job in Analysis Services 2008. I think it's going to be very rare that people will migrate a cube from 2005 and 2008 and don't notice that, um, you know, the, that they get some kind of performance benefit. Um, yeah. The, the ones I, I particularly note, uh, I've seen a number of, well, the, the typical demos of it, but it seems to be, yeah, subspace calculations seem to be one of the key areas. Yeah, I mean, um, the kind of the whole area that this is referred, this type of optimization uh, refers to, is, it's kind of um, a particular mode that analysis services can work in for doing calculations called block computation, um, which is kind of hard to explain what it means, but if you can imagine that um, in its most basic mode when analysis services does a calculation. Um, say, for example, we've got you know, a calculation that divides one measure by another. So you might have your um, sales revenue and your number of customers, and you want to have you know, your, your average revenue by customer, which is... Yep. Revenue divided by number of customers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you imagine you're running a big query and you're looking at revenue by customers for a large number of cells, um, you know, in its most basic mode, analysis services would have to go through every cell in that result set and say, well, what's the revenue? 
what's the number of customers, do the division, get the result. But um, the optimization, you know, the, the, the kind of basic type of optimization that analysis service can do, and um, what it's able to do a lot more of the time in 2008 is to say, well, okay, we've got a calculation here which is revenue divided by number of customers. Now, I know that that calculation is going to return null when the number of customers measure is null. Yeah. So, looking at this great big result set that I have to calculate, if I know that a cell, you know, for this particular cell, for this particular combination maybe of year and customer and product, you know, I didn't actually sell anything to any customers, then I don't need to do that calculation because looking at the way yeah. that calculation is written, you know, X divided by Y, if Y is null, then you know, the results of the calculation will always be null. So, yeah, I think it's one of the things that's always hard to imagine is just how sparse this data often is. Exactly, yes. And, you know, within a cube there is, there, there is always a lot of sparsity of the, the data that you have compared to the data that could be in the cube. For example, you know, you might have individual customers and individual products, but more often than not, each customer has only bought maybe one or two out of hundreds or thousands or millions of um, products. So the sparsity there is already very great. Mm. And when you consider that they might have only bought those customers on one or two days as opposed to you know, all of the hundreds of days that you've got across the, you know, five or six years that you store data for, then, you know, the amount of data in the cube is um, is a lot less than potentially the, the space that the cube would allow you to hold. So that that's really the kind of big change for MDX. There hasn't really been many other changes in um, MDX in 2008. I think partly because the development team didn't want to rock the boat too much. Um, you know, a lot of people were still just coming to grips with all of the new stuff in 2005. In fact, you know, a lot of the new concepts that were brought in in, in 2005, you know, the, the development team was kind of only just come to grips with them and worked out how things should behave. You know, there were a lot of um, kind of the, of the more obscure areas of MDX that um, behaved one way in RTM of um, Analysis Services 2005 and then behaved slightly differently by the time we got to Service Back 2. So, I'm um, curious. So, uh, you know, these are things which have only just settled down in the kind of accepted way they should work. So the last thing that um, anybody wants to do is to have a whole bunch of new functionality that's going to still complicate things even more. Now, one of the one of the discussions that comes up quite a bit with the relational side is uh, that there are an awful lot of people that are still on 2000 and are going to migrate directly to 2008 who seem to have never gone to 2005. Do you get the same sense with analysis services? Actually not. Um, I think because the changes between 2000 and 2005 were so great um, Mm -hmm. and also the potential improvements were so great, a lot of people 
um, migrated from 2000 to 2005 very quickly. And also what I saw was um, when 2005 came out, there was suddenly a big explosion of interest in analysis services. So I think a lot of people who are using Mm. analysis services now started with 2005 and never, ever used 2000 at all. And in fact, it's very rare that I ever see any 2000 installs in my consulting work at all. I mean, they are still out there, but, um, you know, they're, you know, they're kind of left alone and um, probably forgotten about. So I I think, you know, people are on 2005. The question is whether they'll want to migrate to 2008. Um, And my suspicion is that they probably won't want to. Yeah, that's what I was sort of wondering, because what I sort of saw with probably in consulting work, I still see probably half the sites on 2000 in relational side of things. And there's a very compelling argument now for those people being on 2008. In fact, um, coming up, I mean, I think a lot of them see it as the best service pack for 2005 is 2008. But that's what I was sort of wondering in analysis services, I, I, I can't remember the last site I've been in where they're still running 2000. And, and so, yeah, I do sort of wonder if the impetus to upgrade to 2008 will be the same for analysis services. And from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe not. No, and I think probably enough people, have, you know, the people that did migrate from 2000 to 2005, are still, they still have very raw memories of the pain involved in doing so. So they're probably yeah, not. Yeah, well, because again, it was. Yeah, it was a bit of a different sort of product moving between the two. And the, well, I suppose that's one of the next questions is that do you find that people who are using 2005 now use it like they used 2000 or do you think they really took advantage of many of the changes that were in 2005? I think the differences were so great that they had to. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about migrating from 2000 to 2005, you know, realistically, you couldn't migrate. You had to start again from scratch and really rebuild your cubes. So you couldn't fail to, you know, you absolutely had to take advantage of a lot of the new features. Um, So, you know, I wouldn't say that there's anybody out there really kind of running 2005 in a 2000 way. Yeah. Whereas I find in the relational side, by as a direct contrast, there are an enormous number of people who are running 2005 like they ran 2000, mm. uh, where they, they've almost used none of the new features whatsoever in 2005. Well, I think a lot of people migrate because they have to, um, because yeah. you know, the system's working well, but it's, oh, look, you know, Microsoft's withdrawing support and you know, we're under pressure. We've got to migrate because we've got to migrate, you know, and they don't really have any pressing business need to migrate. It's just that they have to migrate because they're told they have to migrate. Um, Which, Although with 2008, if in analysis services, if performance is significantly improved in a number of areas, you'd think on its own, given the type of things you do with analysis services, that's probably a compelling argument. But, I mean, it's easy to kind of overstate the performance problems that people have with 2005. I mean, in a mm. lot of cases, it, you know, 2005 just works, and it works very well, and it, you know, it, it performs incredibly well. So yes. uh, it's not, it's, 
it's really not unless people have got specific performance problems that I think they'll be interested in migrating to 2008. Mm. I think I was just thinking that people always want more, <laughs> no matter where they're at. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, in, in BI, everybody wants more, and query performance is, is the real thing. You know, everybody wants faster queries. Um, I mean, in a lot of cases, what you'd probably find is that if you tuned the queue properly in 2005, people's performance problems would go away anyway. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, making it easier for the queue to run faster, you know, rather yeah. than knowing the particular tricks and tweaks to make 2005 perform well. You know, you just migrate to 2008 and the engine just gets clever at running the same queries faster. Yeah. Actually, that, that's another really interesting point I wanted to bring up is that in in the relational side of the house, uh, the, there's often a lot of discussion about how effectively you write the queries to then give the, the engine the best chance of running them. But the converse argument is that you should be simply expressing what you're after, and that's actually the optimizer's job to <laughs> uh, to work it out. And, in fact, it's quite surprising that you can write queries that are radically different but end up with the same execution plan because the optimizer is very, very good. Do you find the same with MDX or not? Is there a significant difference in how you write the query as to how efficiently it runs? Um, I think... In terms of writing queries, it's not so interesting. The, the question really applies with writing calculations. So mm -hmm. in general, when you write a, an MDX select statement, it's usually fairly straightforward. The, the really complex logic comes when you're writing calculations and you know, the definitions for calculated members. And what you'll certainly find with 2005, and I guess less so in 2008, is that you can write the same calculation in different ways and get very, very different performance. Um, you know, if you look at 50% you know, of the entries on Moshe Passimansky's blog or even my blog, it's all about how to write you know, calculations in the most efficient way possible. And, you know, some of it is how you implement the you know, the algorithm you use for the calculation. Um, because obviously the, the algorithm you use is going to be, uh, you know, has, a, has a big determining factor on, um, you know, the performance of the query. But, you know, probably more often than you would like, it's knowing how the analysis services engine treats certain functions or certain constructs and whether it can optimize certain things or not. Um, you know, one of the great examples is the use of the IAS um, function compared to the case statement in MDX. Yep. So, you know, if you, you know, the, the, the analysis services query optimizer can do clever optimization things if you're using IA, the IAS statement to do conditional logic, whereas it can't if you're using the case statement. So you might write your query, your, your calculation, and think you know, you're doing, you're writing it nice and clearly using a case statement, whereas yep. you know you actually get better performance using IIF. Um, and that's do you, probably do one you think the then that's a, that's a limitation of the optimizer? Yes, and it's one of those things that the development team 
hadn't got round to, I mean, I've not tested it in 2008, but I'm fairly sure it's one of the things that has now been sorted out in 2008. It's just a matter of looking at all of these functions and you know, making sure that analysis services can use the, the optimal query plan for all of the different ways that you can express the same calculation. Because in, in the end, it, it would seem disappointing. That's a, a good example where if it is clearer to write it one way and and the two ways are actually producing exactly the same result, it, it's then disappointing if one runs significantly faster or slower than the other. Exactly. And I think that's been one of the things that has, that's frustrated people about MDX is that it, it's too too easy to write a calculation that does what you want but doesn't do it in the most optimal way possible. I mean, mm. for me, from a consultancy point of view, that's great because that's where I make my living. Knowing all that's where you make your living, yeah. But, you know, really from the point of view of the MDX language, that, that's a bad thing. And that's why it's had priority, I guess, in 2008, just to, you know, yeah. to stop these situations happening. Yeah. Apart from case and IIF, the, are there other really common ones? I wouldn't say that there's anything really that sticks out. Um, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's kind of a grey area to, you know, you can say, well, you know, you've got to think about the algorithm, then you've got to think about the implementation in MDX. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's not really a, a clear cut. There's kind of a grey area between the two where, you know, the algorithm seems, the, the two algorithms seem kind of about equivalent, and it's just knowing, it's just having that good gut feel about what is acceptable for analysis services or what an, the kind of MDX that analysis services likes and can optimize. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a good game, really, looking at calculations and um, seeing how you can optimize them or write them. Um, I mean, one of the, you know, in a fairly recent blog entry on um, Moshe's blog, he was looking at um, writing a set expression that finds the, um, he's looking at the the, the, um, the product dimension in the AdventureWorks database, and yep. I think there's something like 27,000 products on there, and writing a set expression that found the number of, the, the the distinct number of first letters in the names of all of the products. So you need to go through the product dimension and find out you know, the, the distinct number of first letters in all of these product names. So yeah. out of these 27,000 products there, it turns out there are just 17 distinct first letters in all of their names. And, you know, he writes uh, in his blog entry, he looks at a whole bunch of different ways of approaching the problem. And, you know, the, the first attempt that he, he does, you know, takes 30 seconds to run. And by the end of his blog entry, he's got it down to like a, a fifth of a second to get yeah. the same result. Um, and in that case, it's kind of partly you need to think about the algorithm. Um, but also, like I said, it's partly you need to think about the implementation. And partly it's kind of a bit of both, really. Hmm. So, uh, Look, that's... Pretty much bringing us up towards time, Chris. The, uh, I was going to say, what have you got coming up in the future or where will people see you or uh, anything like that? 
Well, one of the things I, I would like to plug, if you're in the UK, um, I'm involved in organizing the SQL Bits conferences. Mm -hmm. So we're having another SQL Bits conference. happened not that long ago, I remember, and I, I saw glowing reviews back from people on. Yeah, we've had we've had two so far. Um, the last one, I guess, was, was it back in March, I think, and we're having another yep. one on September the 13th in uh, Hatfield, which is just north of London near Luton Airport. So uh, we hope to see everybody from the UK who's interested in SQL Server, but also anybody in Europe that wants to fly over to London. I mean, Luton Airport is one of the kind of low-cost airline hubs in the UK, so yeah. it should be easy for people to get to. Um, and I've, I'll also be um, speaking at PASS USA um, later this year as well. So for the first of course, time, which is yes, November in Seattle. Exactly. So I'll be there as well. Excellent. And have you been doing any more writing, or is uh, the, the first book enough? Well, I did kind of want to do some more writing, but um, it turns out that what I wanted to write about was MDX, and I'm kind of under contract to Wiley for writing MDX books, so I can't write okay. MDX books for anyone else. So that's kind of that. Um, I am also... I've kind of branched out into doing a little bit of software development as well. Um, one of my pet er my my pet areas of frustration was always the support of um, analysis services within reporting services. So yes. you kind of always think that because these are the two kind of big BI products from Microsoft within the SQL Server group, you'd think they'd work well together. Um, but in fact, the integration between reporting services and analysis services has always been pretty appalling. Um, so kind of at the end of last year, I had a, an idea of a way of kind of working around some of these problems. And um, in partnership with uh, a company called IT Workplace in the UK, I've actually started, you know, putting out a, a product which is basically uh, a custom data extension for reporting services plus a new and better MDX query builder which kind of tries to take away a lot of the pain of um, working with analysis services and reporting services and that's called oh, Intelligentsia Query. Intelligentsia Query. Yeah. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today, Chris, and... Uh, at the latest, I will see you in Seattle in November. Well, that's great. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Chris. All right, thanks.